Good morning, Hope Church. It's really good to be with you. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we want to thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you. It's a new day. Thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. And Father, I pray, would you speak to us? Would you strengthen us and would you equip us in these days? In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, it's good again to be with you. We now leave Thyatira that we looked at last time and we now head around uh, to Sardis. Now, this is our sixth message that we're doing on the seven churches. If you, if this is the first one you're watching, I'd encourage you to look at the others. You'll find them on our website. Sardis is situated some 60 miles east of Smyrna. Sardis experienced a really long life. It was founded in 1400 BC and it lasted all the way until the 15th century AD. Sardis was placed in a fertile plain and the river Pactolus, which was there, gave them a liberal supply of gold. Sardis was built 1400 feet off the valley floor. It was on a high and steep acropolis that was jutting out of Mount Tmolus. It had a reputation, Sardis had this reputation of being impregnable. In fact, such was the fame of Sardis's impregnability that it was used as a metaphor. The metaphor was this, to capture the uh, the Acropolis of Sardis was used to demonstrate when something was impossible. However, despite Sardis being impregnable, it was captured twice. It was captured not through brute strength, but because a soldier uh, was seen by the enemy accessing a tunnel because he had dropped his helmet uh, from their rampart and uh, he went down to retrieve it. And that tunnel then became the access that the enemy used to conquer the city. Sardis had the best of everything. It had a choice location, it had a choice climate, it had a choice economy, great wealth and a choice culture. Let's read now the letter to Sardis. Revelation 3 verse 1 to 6. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life but I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. What a different letter than the one to Thyatira. Again, it's very reminiscent of the letter to Ephesus that they have lost something that they gained at the beginning. 
You'll notice that this letter breaks the convention of all the previous letters. The, the first four letters started with a, rec with a commendation from Jesus and then it was followed by a complaint. This letter turns that onto its head. It starts with a complaint from Jesus. Also in the other letters, Jesus uses the term I know in saying I know your suffering and difficulty and persecution. But here it is used by Jesus in the negative. What is striking about this letter is that there is no mention of persecution and there is no mention of false teaching. However, Jesus does not agree with this church's assessment of themselves. Jesus's words are very direct. He says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. This was the church of the living dead. On the outside, the church looked fine, but on the inside, it was dead. It's reminiscent of Jesus's stark words to the religious Jewish leaders. In Matthew 23, 27 to 28, he says, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Gordon Fee, in his commentary on Revelation, quotes the church of Sardis, saying it was a perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. Whereas Pergamum and Thyatira's struggle was with compromise, Sardis's challenge was complacency. It was a sleeping church. Jesus's solution was simple. Wake up. The church needed to rouse itself. Gordon Fee states, in the case of the believers in Sardis, they appear to have lost touch with reality. No longer are they looking forward with eagerness to Christ's coming, but they are now coasting, feeling secure and impregnable and are no longer watchful. This was so ironic as historically the city of Sardis had been seen as being impregnable. They had a reputation for being impregnable and this seems to have transferred onto how the church viewed itself. And Jesus tells them not only to wake up, but he says, hold fast and repent. Otherwise, he will return when they least expect it. Perhaps this was a reminder that it was the impregnable Sardis, that it was captured when the enemy uh, came up through a hidden tunnel and took the city. After this stark warning, Jesus addresses the faithful. You know, it's encouraging that no matter what the context, there are always those faithful to Jesus, even though they are small in number. Here, as always, Jesus has a special word of encouragement for the faithful. Jesus tells them that they will walk with him, dressed in white clothes. What does that mean? Well, Gordon Fee tells us this. Given the history of this city and its loyalty to Rome, this metaphor of them being dressed in white is very likely an allusion to the Roman triumphal procession, where to honour their returning conquering heroes, the citizens lined streets in white and thus joined in the parade. In like manner, some in Sardis will be considered worthy to join in the Lord's triumph when he returns as conqueror.
The dangers of the churches we've looked at so far has been manifold. Persecution, false teaching and compromise. And here in Sardis we hit complacency. Craig Keener in his commentary on Revelation says, Jesus' followers seem to have coexisted peacefully with the synagogue community and therefore likely coexisted peacefully with the city establishment as a whole. Lacking the world's opposition, they may have grown comfortable in their relationship with the world. This church is probably one of the greatest challenges to our Western church. It was a wealthy, comfortable church. It was in a city that was wealthy and comfortable. It was in a city that was historically significant. It appeared to be untouchable. And the church seems to be reflecting these values. Kina says about Sardis, Sardinians schooled from youth in the history of their city that conquerors had never overtaken Sardis by conventional war, but had twice conquered it unexpectedly because Sardinians had failed to watch adequately. It's interesting that in the present world that it seems to be the same situation. Whilst Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum and Thyatira were facing opposition for being faithful, Sardis faced no opposition at all. Why is that? Why did they face no opposition? Whilst China and North Korea as examples and Indian believers face opposition, the Western church in general does not. I wonder why that is. For some, the enemy is persecution. For others, it's false teaching that leads them to compromise. And for still yet others, it is complacency. And I think Sardis is probably the closest to the Western church today. Sardis did not have a true picture of themselves. How often we pride ourselves in the West that we have all the resources, that we have big churches, multi-million uh, uh, pound business churches, and yet our growth compared to India or to China is inconsequential. You know, Sardis thought they were a picture of health and Jesus told them that they were dead. What a stark contrast. Imagine thinking, hey, we are a living, active, dynamic church and Jesus comes and says, guys, you're dead. Sardis represents the sleeping church, and as such, Jesus tells them, wake up! For many people, this past year, having thrown us out of habits and rhythms that we have been so used to, has helped us to wake up. My sincere hope as you're watching this this morning is that in your Christian faith, you have a greater hunger, that there's been a certain bit of waking up, that Jesus has said, guys, there is so much more. And I want to encourage you in that today. Kina makes this statement in his commentary. The warning to wake up is especially relevant to sleeping churches. That is to those that are guided more by their culture than by Jesus's voice, or any sense of future reckoning before him. He adds, also it is important to hear the blunt warning of the text and not to reduce it on the basis of our more comfortable theological presuppositions. Our faith in the Bible as God's word requires us to revise our thinking to fit the text, 
not the reverse. Take, for example, the implications of lostness for those who fail to overcome. The challenge that Sardis presents here is that we have a right assessment of ourselves. And I'm not talking about individually. Yep, you can take it like that. But I wonder what Jesus' assessment is of Hope Church. That's what challenges me. That's what I'm praying into. That's the thing that sometimes keeps me awake at night. What is Jesus' assessment of Hope Church in West Brom? Now, we cannot look around to others for that assessment. That will prove fruitless. In the end, the only assessment that really counts is the one that comes from Jesus. The Sardinian Christians were different from the other churches discussed so far. Satan did not have to pressure them with persecution or with temptation. The church was already dead. They had become comfortable with the world. They had to pay no price for their faith in Jesus Christ and therefore they were in a position of being taken by surprise. Craig Keener shares some really great insights about World War II Germany. Let me read it to you. In Nazi Germany, some 7,000 of 18,000 pastors in the state church opposed the Aryan clause that excluded Christians of Jewish descent from working in the church. In time, the confessing church formed to protest the state church's compromise with Hitler. But gradually, Hitler began to woo this very church. He allowed some of their distinctives and provided legitimacy for them if they would simply acquiesce to his expansionist plans. Dietrich Bonhoeffer fought this compromise. He became an increasingly isolated minority voice in view of the practical realities of the church's situation. He claimed that the failure of German Christians to resist the Nazi rise to power stemmed from their lack of moral clarity. The only people who can stand firm in such situations are those whose standards is not whose standard is not reason or conscience, but God and his word. Now, before you dismiss what the uh, German church leaders did under Nazi rule and say it wouldn't happen in our day, let me give you some statistics here. England alone, this doesn't include um, Wales or um, Scotland, aborts 200,000 unborn children every single year. That's England alone. The world kills some 73 million unborn every single year. Hitler was branded a madman and evil for killing half as many. Let me ask you, how complacent are we within the culture and in the rule that we're in? We need to sound out a true gospel to the church. So far, we've seen that Jesus' greatest complaint becomes because of what believers were doing or not doing. It's all related to what Jesus called us to do. How is it possible that in many churches, people can call themselves Christians and sit in church week after week, but not really follow him with all of their heart and their lifestyle? Kina demonstrates in a, a really good story that I'm about to read how our gospel can often lead to a faulty outcome because we're not clear enough.
He says this, when Mickey Cohen, a famous Los Angeles gangster of the late 1940s, made a public profession of faith in Christ, his new Christian friends were elated. But as time passed, they began to wonder why he did not leave his gangster lifestyle. When they confronted him concerning this question, however, he protested. You never told me I had to give up my career. You never told me I had to give up my friends. There are Christian movie stars, Christian athletes, Christian businessmen. So what's the matter with being a Christian gangster? If I have to give up all of that, if that's Christianity, count me out. You know, you may laugh at that story, but let me tell you a gospel that does not require someone to give up everything and to take up their cross daily and follow Jesus will prove in the end to be no gospel at all. The hard truth here is that it's very evident that you can have your name blotted out from the book of life. It's a hard teaching. The criteria is that we need to remain faithful. As we conclude this morning, we can look to Jesus's encouragement to Sardis. There were a few who had not stained their garments with evil, the faithful few. How is this an encouragement? Well, let me tell you, the masses are never right. Don't judge your actions by others, but by what Jesus tells you and by what is written in the scriptures. We need to stick to Jesus. We need to stick to scripture, not to the social culture around us. There is a reward. Think about it. When Jesus comes back, we will join him. New clothes, new name, a new body, a new life, a life so much more glorious than anything this earth has to offer. This is why the martyrs gave their lives willingly. They were looking forward to a better resurrection, a world free of pain, free of suffering. No more tears, no more greed, no more war or evil. This is our goal. To this end we work. We await the coming Jesus to finally join him and put this evil world behind us. And to this end, we watch and we follow. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you. Thank you that you enable us. Thank you that you have a word of encouragement for all of us who remain faithful. And Father, I pray, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. Father, help us to understand the truth. As we said last time, give us a hunger for scripture. Help us, Father, to know your word intimately. And Father, I pray, let us not be complacent. I pray for Hope Church, that we would not be a complacent church, that we would not be a church that gives in to the culture around us. And so, Lord, I pray, would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you speak to us? And would you help us in these days? In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a really great day.